Welcome, everybody. Uh, my name is Matt Scholl, and uh, with me is Don Sheets, and this is our first main EMS podcast. Don, what are we trying to do here for this podcast situation? So we're, uh, first, we're, we're calling this the Fireside Chat with Don and Matt. Um, unfortunately, we're not by a fireside. We're in a very austere government building right now. It's, it's just a lovely environment. Uh, so what we're trying to do is make sure that we're getting information out to, to providers in, a, uh, in an expedient fashion. And we're really trying to leverage newer technology and the fact that podcasts can be listened to in a car, driving down the road. They can be listened to while people are working, hang out at home, because, I mean, I know that that's what I like to do when I'm at home is work. It's, it's a good <laughs> time. So uh, we're just trying to really use this technology to our advantage and uh, help providers have a better understanding of the main EMS system and get information out in a timely manner. Yeah, and we're pretty excited about this ability to communicate, and we've got some rough ideas about what these will include. Um, uh, Don and I have talked about maybe 15 minutes of frequently asked questions, 15 minutes of uh, updates about the system, about main EMS, about the medical direction and practice board, or MDPB, and what the agenda is and what's going on in all those organizations. And then finally, wrapping it up with somewhere around 30 minutes of education. And, and, you know, the times may be flexible, but that's our general idea around an hour for each of these with some updates, some uh, questions, and then some education. And while today it's Don and I sitting alone, this is the first one we're going to do. We hope to bring in more speakers uh, from around the EMS system um, to you and uh, involve other people in this. So a couple things just to touch base on uh, before we really get kind of into the meat of the podcast here. Uh, this is our first podcast, like we said. So if there are audio issues, um, we welcome feedback. Uh, we want feedback on things that you want to hear about anyway. If you if you find this useful, uh, we're going to try to figure out what the timeline looks like for how often we're going to do this, whether it's quarterly, monthly, you know, once a year because you don't want to hear us any more than that. Um, whatever works. The best way to do this is probably to email me. Uh, my email is donald.c.sheets at main.gov. You can also find me on the contact page on our website. And what I'm going to try to do is compile frequently asked questions and comments that you have, and we're going to try to make the podcast you know user-friendly for you. Um, and along with that hour timeline that Matt um, proposed, that's going to work out to about a half an hour of operations credit and about a half an hour of topics for whatever it happens to fall into for a category that day. Um, that's great, yeah. So, uh, again, our, our goal here is to communicate, communicate information timely, uh, also communicate some education. Uh, part of communication is you guys getting back to us. And so along with comments on the podcast, if you like it, if you don't, if you want to see things changed, what questions you have, we also want to hear from you about the topics that you're interested in hearing from us. And as I mentioned before, we're hopefully going to bring more folks into this process with us. And if there are recommendations you have about folks to talk about stuff, let us know. Great. All right. So frequently asked questions? On to the frequently asked questions. All right. So some of the, I've pulled a couple of questions that people have asked us a lot in the past. Um, we we'll jump right into question one. Um, why are we carrying low pressure when it seems like every time we go into the ER, physicians are giving patients cardizin for um, atrial tachycardias? Yeah, that's a great question, Don. So if you think about 
where uh, low pressure now ends up in our protocols, it, you know, one of the big places is around the treatment of atrial tachycardia, especially AFib. And um, we, we've been historically interested in maintaining a single drug in a single class for, a, for purposes of safety. Um, and if you think back to 2005 when our protocols came out, we were still at that point in time pretty liberal with the use of beta blockers in the face of acute coronary syndromes. Yeah. Interestingly, at the end of 2005, just as our protocols were being published to the public, the uh, American Card College of Cardiology was re-looking re at the data around beta blockers and um, interestingly started dissuading us from giving beta blockers acutely because of concerns um, uh, regarding patients who get worse and now they're beta blocked. Um, we're still giving beta blockers in the acute phases of acute coronary syndromes just now within a 20, somewhere within the 24 hour time frame and not in the emergency phases. But that was why low pressure got into our protocols. Now interestingly, low pressure is really operationally easy to use, um, doesn't require refrigeration. Some of the preparations, the non-reconstitutable preparations of cardiazem end up needing to be refrigerated. Unfortunately, those preparations are much more expensive than the low pressure. And then finally, another thing to consider is that even though there, you even though providers see a lot of physicians using cardiazem or cardiazem drips, the evidence between low pressure in the acute phases of AFib versus cardiazem in the acute phases of AFib is really split. And in some of the only head-to-head -head trials we have, there's no evidence to suggest that one is better than the other. And so for uh, operational reasons, based on the literature we have available to us right now, we've chosen to stay with um, with uh, low pressure in the protocols for the time being. Now, I will tell you, uh, I mentioned earlier our interest in being operationally, um, uh, our, our operational interest in maintaining a single drug and a single class have been blown out of the water with recent drug shortage issues. And uh, when we were thinking about shortages of low pressure, which did affect the nation, luckily not us, we had to go with Cardiazem as a backup, although we never had to enact that in the state, but it was a consideration for us. And, you know, this drug shortage issue that's touching emergency drugs is real. It's, it's big. Of all the drug shortages in the U.S., 40% of the drug shortages are shortages for emergency services, both emergency medicine and EMS. 40% of the drugs that we are short on touch us and touch us in a big way. So that's pain control, antiemetics, um, medications for cardiac arrest, etc. The rest of the drugs, those other 60%, are really drugs that are uh, pertinent to the practice of an oncologist. And it's interesting the, uh, the way things have, have, have shuffled out, that the two major classes of drugs that are short right now are drugs that are important to the practice of emergency medicine and EMS and drugs that are practice, that are important to the practice of oncology. So does that answer that question, you think? Yeah, and I just want to touch, you, you brought up patient safety re relating to one medication. And I, yes. I just want to circle back on that because it's, it's a frequent question that we get actually is, you know, why don't we have, you know, other options if a drug doesn't work? And I know that there's been a lot of studies both in hospital, you know, a lot of hospital studies that actually have demonstrated that, you know, if you have that one go-to med on, on, a, on your daily basis, that it reduces the risk of medication, dosing errors, and um, other such things along that line. 
Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, I think we've got a lot of evidence to suggest that streamlining the um, formulary of any practice is an important safety measure um, by, you know, and, and that's historically why we got to where we got. And, um, you know, being very familiar with a single benzodiazepine, such as midazolam, uh, we believe it's, it's, it's uh, one of the more effective benzodiazepines. That's another reason why we chose it. But it allows the provider to fix in their head the dosing scheme for that one drug rather than have to memorize the dosing schemes for three different drugs. Uh, using midazolam in that way, in that way we, we believe is safe. Now, again, all of those notions of safety we've had to uh, bump into because of the drug shortage and because of medications not being available, we've had to consider utilizing other meds. And while uh, I, I still hold to the premise of safety and streamlining the formulary, it appears as if we're going to have to reconsider that based on the persistence of these medication shortages. But that's a, for another topic at a different time. Alright, All right, next question is uh, if intermediates are taking the time to apply 12 leads and acquire 12 leads, why aren't we having them interpret them? Another great question, Don. And, and I, I think what um, if you all recall, back in the early 2000s, uh, the In a Heartbeat campaign, which was a collection of cardiologists, intensivists, uh, EMS physicians, emergency medicine physicians across the state gathered and, and really were working on mechanisms to improve the outcome from acute coronary syndromes and STEMIs in particular. And one of the recommendations that came out of that was to engage in a collaborative effort that that would span the pre-hospital and the hospital-based environment. And certainly part of that included early detection of uh, STEMIs in particular. And in order to do that, we went on a large campaign to make 12-lead capability widely available, both to paramedics and to intermediates. Now, paramedics are taught to interpret uh, 12 leads in the current main and national scope of practice, but even back in the 2005 and before range, we weren't necessarily requiring, or we weren't teaching intermediates to uh, interpret 12 leads. Now, part of that is that the scope of practice at the national level and all the educational products do not include that. We went through a thoughtful discussion about whether we as Maine should add that to the curriculum, and it's important to re recognize that it's not just learning how to interpret for STEMI but it includes a large amount of cardiac anatomy, cardiac uh, physiology, cardiac pathophysiology, and then on top of that, interpretation of a 12-lead in general. And when we did the gap analysis and we, rev we reviewed what it would take to get there in a substantive way that was, uh, that was founded on the same process that a paramedic utilizes in their initial training, we realized that it would be it would significantly increase the learning requirements of the intermediate uh, uh, coursework, and for that reason, we decided not to do that. However, we still believe there's value in having an intermediate obtain a 12 lead because that's a that's a that's a point in time, and it is a it is a snapshot of what was happening in that patient's uh, for that patient at that moment of time. And very commonly, we see changes occur between EMS and the hospital. And so having that point in time captured on a 12-lead, we found valuable historically. 
I'd also like to just point out that currently in our state we actually have intermediates or what are soon going to be AEMTs. Yes. Um, Advanced EMTs. Yes. yes. We currently have them actually um, learning six basic rhythms in cardiology, and that in itself is actually outside of the national scope of practice, which does actually create some level of uh, operational difficulties when it comes to people trying to get reciprocity in the state and whatnot. But, um, you know, we can work around the system. But, you know, that already adds to the overall time frame of an intermediate course, which, you know, adding that time in, it either increases the total number of hours and the total cost of a class, or it has that possibility of actually um, taking away from other aspects of a class. So, it, it, you know, not only did the MDPB make the decision that having intermediates do acquisition without interpretation, having value in that, but the Education Committee also really pushed the idea that, you know, if we add a whole lot more to this, we really run the risk of muddying the water and actually uh, watering down the education in, you know, say, assessment of patients. And, you know, the impact that that could actually have on our system was felt that it could be very negative. So, you know, as our state as a whole, we're trying to stick to the national scope of practice and, you know, make it easier for providers to move across state lines. And, you know, at some point we'll talk about the New England Protocol idea. You know, yeah, all, of that, idea yeah. all of that plays a factor in this and that getting us all on the same page across the country, region, state, you know, it, it really it makes it hard when we start to really have those deviations in, in protocols. Exactly, yeah. Let's chat briefly about the state QI committee. I mean, you uh, kind of head up that committee and mm. uh, really facilitate those meetings. And both hang out there every mm. every every third Wednesday of the month. Yes. Um, questions that we often get are: you know, What's the purpose of that committee? What are they really trying to do? Are they trying to get down to the provider and catch people doing the wrong thing, or are they, you know, are we doing the system approach to finding both, you know? system provider issues as well as main EMS system issues? That's What's a, your take? That's a great question, Don, and I, I think I'll, I'll uh, start this answer by quoting one of my friends, uh, John Quistra from Portland Fire Department, who likes to say that the biggest problem with QI or QA is the connotation of the I and the A and the, and the leap immediately to internal affairs in the police department. And, and in reality, we are not trying to... Um, we really aren't trying to uh, uh, reach to the individual level and, and catch a person who's not giving aspirin. What we are trying to do is we are trying to maintain a focus on our patients, recognizing that there are some things we do which are really, really important to the care of patients. And if there, those things are so evident to us, why don't we spend a little bit of energy making sure that we we figure out how frequently those things are occurring and if they're not happening as frequently as they should trying to find the reasons for uh, for that and then trying to overcome those barriers by resourcing our people as much as possible we purposely started with something that number one was known to be important and there's a lot of literature around ie uh, aspirin and the utility of aspirin in the patient with cardiac chest pain or chest pain of suspected cardiac etiology. And number two, something that everyone does. We all see chest pain patients. It's one of the most frequent complaints that we run into. And so we, we tried this in an effort to say, listen, let's, uh, let's understand how commonly we're doing this really good thing for patients. And if 
that we find that there are times in which it's not happening, let's try to understand what those issues are. And, and you saw our first pass at this happen over the summer. And I think that we learned a lot through that process. We learned that there are pockets of excellence where some services are giving aspirin 100% of the time to patients with chest pain of suspected cardiac etiology. And we found that there are places that struggle to get aspirin to these patients. Now, when we looked deeper into that, it might be that it, it's, not it's not that the patient's not getting the aspirin, it's that the aspirin is not being documented in the run report. And as time moves on, we're gonna, we, I think what we're going to need to be careful of is, is how well we're doing what we do. Um, one of the things we've recognized in medicine as a whole and in some of the transitions in healthcare is that uh, we are being, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, graded, or we as healthcare providers are being assessed uh, by the care we provide. And that assessment is beginning to be linked to remuneration or payment for healthcare. So, for instance, it's not enough to just do a total knee replacement. Now you need to do a total knee replacement without complications, including infection. Right? It's not enough to treat and hospitalize a patient for CHF or COPD. It's now hospitals are encouraged to treat a patient for CHF and COPD as best they can and keep them from subsequently being readmitted to the hospital. Those are, it, it, it may not, for many reasons, hospitals are trying to decrease the readmission rate because it's linked to um, reimbursement at this point in time. Now that's not happening in EMS right now, but many of us at the national and state level are very uh, closely watching what's helping, happening in other sectors of the healthcare industry, and we want to be leaders in this transition in healthcare. Uh, and not to say that this is about money, but this is about patients, and we're recognizing increasingly an attention on quality and safety in the care of our patients. And we, we, we hope to be able to start a conversation, a dialogue, and energies around quality improvement efforts in the state. Let's touch back on a couple of things you said, actually, um, that I, I think are some points that we can expand upon a little bit. And a couple being, one being, uh, you, you talked about aspirin being something that we all do. One of the things that we're tr that we've kind of all discussed that we want to try to accomplish within the QI committee is actually making sure that we're frequently looking at uh, care methods that affect all license levels. And aspirin was one of the things that we looked at. One, it was easy to figure out whether it was documented or not. It was easy to say yes or no, they did or didn't get it. And it hits from the EMT level all the way to the paramedic level. And to steal some of your own words that you often say, it, it's probably the single safest, most effective drug that we can provide to patients, and it hits all levels. Yes. It breaks yes. that barrier of, you know, paramedic is, you know, the important lifestyle. In this case, having an EMS provider show up and provide aspirin is probably the best thing we can do for these people and get them to a hospital. And, you know, it's interesting. And another great example of a similar type of therapy we provide is chest compressions in the care of cardiac arrest patients. Um, just as an aside, I think we've come full circle in cardiac arrest. We started a lot of our efforts um, focusing on ALS therapies, IVs, medications, intubation. We realize in the years 2010 and beyond that 
the, um, the, some of the most important therapies we provide are actually BLS therapies and the effectiveness of chest compressions. And I think it's important, part of QI is learning how we do what we do. And it's in, cardiac arrest is a great example. It's hard to know where to direct your efforts if you don't know some basic foundation numbers, such as your survival rates. If you learn your survival rates, then you can start to adjust your operations to do even better. And a great example of this is what's been happening in some of our services across the state who have really embraced this patient population, spent a lot of time and attention on this patient population, and are seeing some very real improvements in the care delivered to these folks all through a QI mechanism. And this, these efforts equate to lives saved. We have dozens of people in the state who have survived cardiac arrests because of the efforts of these services collectively. Uh, and so in reality, what we're trying to do in the QI committee is, is like I said earlier, really begin a conversation uh, of self-examination and, and making sure that we do the best we can. And I, I believe that this is valid at, as you mentioned, Don, at all levels of EMS provider, basic um, or in the new paradigm EMTs, intermediates or in the new paradigm advanced EMTs, and then also uh, uh, paramedics. And it's also true for both our paid services as well as our volunteer services. Everyone's in here because of a passion to take care of patients. And that passion, you know, it takes different forms in some populations. But at the end of the day, we all feel a calling to care for those within our community. And at the end of the day, if that's the case, we should try to do what we do best. And QI is a way to get there. I like to say that the protocols are our commitment to our patients that we will do the best we know how to do every time we see them. And the QI is our support of that commitment to say we're going to make sure that our protocols and our practice, our operations are living up to that expectation. Right. And to follow up with that, one of the things that we try, we try to accomplish after our initial results were found from the first Aspen study was we looked at a couple of different options and a couple of different approaches to fixing this option. We said, all right, is there an education issue surrounding the use of aspirin? And one of the things that you and I did is we sat down, we tried to dispel some of the, you know, classic, um, you know, contraindications of aspirin. The you know, myths of aspirin. Yeah, the, yeah. the myths. Yeah. You know, hey, someone's got a GI bleed. Oh, I can't give them aspirin, you know. It, it'll be well, okay. Their heart's going to stop. Yeah. So the, the bleeding will stop then. But, yeah. you, know, uh, you know, we want to make sure that people understood that, you know, yeah, it's probably okay, you know, that um, may, maybe they're going to bleed a little bit, but their heart's going to keep pumping, so it's okay. Yeah. Um, so we tried to accomplish that. Uh, we also leveraged some of our uh, QI leadership from uh, some services, and uh, Nate Yerkes had put together a documentation uh, piece to encourage people to make sure that they're documenting the use of aspirin. I mean, let's be honest, probably we probably couldn't find an EMS provider out there who hasn't forgotten to document, you know, that the patient took aspirin before they arrived at some point in their career, but we all want to be cognizant of that fact. So we tried to address, you know, those potential system issues by producing a training. We didn't go after any specific service to say, hey, you know, your service only had a 60%, you know, aspirin administration rate, you know, we're investigating it. It was really, okay, we've identified a problem. Let's try to fix it. Yeah. And at some point, we're going to try to circle back around and make sure that we pull that data again and see if maybe we had an impact on it. And I know that there's services out there that are running this data every month. 
and they're doing their own internal training because they've identified that, hey, you know what, this is really important and this is really easy to access this information. So let's use this information and try to better our care. So yeah. we, we've accomplished, I think, a lot, even without looking at our numbers again. The people that have engaged in the system, uh, I think, has had a, a profound effect on, on our system overall. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, uh, Don and I have both heard of services who um, have learned a lot about how to do this, services who um, continue to do this, and services who are really excited about being able to tap into this type of information and use it to improve their operations and their patient care. So, If you have questions about that, though, please, you know, part of the reasons Don, Don and I wanted to um, give out his email, <laughs> um, not mine, <laughs> was that if, uh, if you do have questions, if you do have uh, follow-ups about this, please push them our way. We'll be happy to answer any of them in the near future. If, if we get every EMS provider in the state listening to this podcast and sending frequently asked questions, um, please be advised. It's probably going to take me a little while to get back to all 5,800 of you, but I'll do my best. <laughs> um, I'll try to do, you know, batch emails out, but um, I'll do my best to answer everybody's e email, and if, if I don't have an answer, I'll certainly engage Matt in the conversation and make sure that we get it out there. Um, last frequently asked question for today, then we got to move on. Let's talk about termination of resuscitation for a minute because there's been a, there's been a lot of animosity about is it 20 minutes of a non-perfusing rhythm or is it 20 minutes of a non-shockable rhythm to terminate resuscitation? So that's a great question. And, and let's just first start off by defining non-perfusing and defining non-shockable. So uh, cardiac arrest is the generic term for any non-perfusing rhythm, and there are four non-perfusing rhythms. There's VF, VT, asystole, and PEA. Now, some of those we treat with defibrillation or shocking, and some of those we don't. And so the ones we treat with defibrillation would be VF, VT, and the ones we don't would be PEA or, and asystole. Now, I want to back up even further and, and say that the in 2011, when we were developing the new cardiac protocols, we recognized that there was a tremendous body of knowledge that was developing around out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And there were some visionary people in the country who were doing some amazing things, and they were seeing tremendous improvements in the care of the cardiac arrest patient. And one of those people is uh, a gentleman named Dr. Ben Bobrow, or Bobrow, out of Arizona, who happens to be the state medical director there, and he and some of his colleagues out of Arizona in a program called the Saver Heart Institute were doing something they were calling cardiocerebral resuscitation. With the idea here being just fundamentally that number one, the things we know work in cardiac arrest are effective chest compressions uh, as well as defibrillation if indicated. And so as a real um, sort of from the, the 30,000 foot view, Dr. Bob Rao and his colleagues basically said, well, if we know that, then we should be highly critical of anything that interrupts the, the delivery of those therapies. And so they started looking at things that interrupt those therapies, and they realized that there are lots of interruptions in chest compressions um, from seemingly important things, such as intubation or airway management in general, 
was identified as one of the things that interrupted chest compressions. They also recognized that we interrupted chest compressions a lot when we check for pulses. They realized we interrupt chest compressions a lot when we, when we move a patient. And they also, the literature has gone on to prove that our chest compressions aren't as effective when we transport a patient, either transport them on a litter from point A to point B by rolling them, or transport them in the back of an ambulance. And in most of the literature we've seen, we recognize that in that transport mode, the effectiveness of CPR decreases by approximately 30%. And when I say effectiveness, I mean there are three parameters we, we measure. Something called hands-on time, or during the case, how, how what is the percentage of time that you're doing compressions? And then the other two are called depth and rate. So when you are doing compressions, are you within the window of an appropriate rate and are you, uh, are you providing the effective depth? Now, what we know about cardiac arrest is that in order to meet our goals of forward flow, we have to be pushing deep enough and we have to be pushing fast enough. And when we start transporting a patient, um, we start to lose depth, we start to lose rate, and we start to lose hands-on time. And all that was going through our minds when we were in the midst of the 2011 protocol change. Now, one of the things we realized we should probably do if we wanted to improve outcomes in cardiac arrest was to focus on those things. And one of the things that we recognized we needed to do was to work patients as proximate geographically to their arrest as possible. We realized that if someone um, is in a, an, an area that is not operationally suitable to work them, they need to be moved. If they're in an area where it's not safe to perform resuscitation, they probably should be moved. But other than those two circumstances, patients should be uh, resuscitated. Uh, resuscitation should begin as soon as possible and they should be resuscitated where they are, not in the back of a moving ambulance and not while trying to move the patient from their location to the ambulance. Now, if we were going to do that, we recognized that we needed to put limits on that. We couldn't have these resuscitations going on indefinitely. We really wanted to structure the process of termination of resuscitation and give providers insight into knowing when is enough? When have we offered the patient as much as we can offer? And therefore, when is it okay to say we've done enough? Now, interestingly, when we reviewed our practice for 2010 and 2009, we were actually doing this practice as a state somewhere around 20 to 30% of the time. We were, we were performing termination of resuscitation, and that was happening in many pockets across the state. And that was okay. We were doing it reasonably in those cases. Um, so we believed this wouldn't necessarily be a new uh, therapy, but a new way to think about cardiac arrest, a new way for us to conceptualize our role. And um, to get to your question in particular, the way that we came up with that protocol was reviewing the literature as a whole, reviewing other very similar protocols across the nation from many of our colleagues in other states or other localities. And um, taking those two efforts and combining all of them into a, a singular protocol. And what we chose was 
to allow for termination of resuscitative efforts not requiring online medical control after 20 minutes of a non-shockable rhythm. And so this is important. It, this gets back to that first thing we talked about, the definition of non-shockable or non-shockable and non-perfusing. It's not after a 20 minutes of non-perfusing rhythm, it's after 20 minutes of non-shockable rhythm. So after 20 minutes of asystole or PEA. And that's a consecutive 20 minutes. If you change from uh, VFVT to asystole and then go back into VFVT, the clock restarts when you re-enter asystole or PEA uh, in those cases. And I think it's important to clarify that to make sure folks truly understand what our intentions were there. Now, as an aside, our goals were the pro with, with the protocols in general are to make sure we, we're offering the best medicine to patients as we can. And in the services across the state that have been watching their QI survival and statistics, I'm, I'm really heartened to, to hear that many of them are seeing tremendous improvements in the survival of cardiac arrest patients. And this equates, as I said earlier, to lives saved, and we've seen dozens of lives saved across the state by improving the way that we resuscitate patients in cardiac arrest. This protocol is a small piece of that. The true, um, the true um, efforts are, rest on the shoulders of the crews and the, the teams that work those patients, though. So I'll just delineate a couple things here for a sec. The, the cardiac arrest survival rates that you're referring to, when we're talking about a code save, we're not talking about they arrive at the hospital alive, which we, I mean, we've seen an increase in that, but you're actually talking about, in some cases, as much as a fourfold um, increase in people effectively walking out of a hospital yeah. with a normal quality of life. Yeah, well, threefold is what, what I'm, I'm most, what I, the services I work with, I've seen threefold increases. There are literature reports with fourfold increases by, by services as well. Um, but yeah, Don's exactly right. We're, we're not just talking about a pulse when they get to the hospital. We're talking about people walking out and being able to go back to work, being able to go back to their own lifestyle um, after the, a cardiac arrest. And so this is really meaningful lives saved. And, and it's, it's, really, it's really neat, I think, for, for myself or guys like you or uh, even the, you know, anyone to see the effect of, of, of this, these good operations on, um, on, the, on patients in the state of Maine. Well, and I, I think it also really it, it paints an absolutely wonderful picture to me in terms of the idea of a system of care. Yes. Because we're talking about BLS treatment as being one of the most effective and most meaningful things that we can do in cardiac arrest. Yes. So we're talking, you know, even going further than that, going to bystanders bystanders yes exactly with Community minimal members. training yeah we're talking about you know a society performing patient care that's then getting people out of the back door of a hospital with with a quality of life absolutely and all of the pieces that go in between in into that process from ems you know dispatch to the ems provider on the street to the er to the icu to you know the cath lab and so on and so forth and that we truly, as EMS providers, are truly part of a system of care. Absolutely. And, and I think you're exactly right. You know, 
some of the things we're going to talk about today, stroke, another great example, uh, cardiac arrest. We're talking about um, the care of the patient with acute coronary syndrome. They really highlight the value of our system of care, uh, in, in particular with EMS. And, and I mean, I think it's really important to recognize um, or to understand uh, that patients, the right patient needs the right care at the right time. And cardiac arrest is a disease that, that will evolve within a matter of minutes. So the right time for care is immediately. Um, and that's why cardiac arrest care uh, requires the engagement of the community and the bystanders. Once we get on scene, we can start offering a continuation or advancing the care by continuing effective chest compressions and defibrillating when it hasn't been done using an AED by bystanders. Um, and it, because we are so proximate to patients, the mortality for cardiac arrest really rests with us. We, we save lives. And the neat thing is that the hospital can do really, really awesome, and I'll use the word cool, things for these patients once they get, get to the hospital through uh, goal-directed therapies like therapeutic hypothermia, like uh, seizure man, uh, control, like uh, glycemic management. Uh, like uh, aggressive hemodynamic care, all those things help save the patient's lifestyle and they prevent further injury to the brain in particular. So we get the heart going, we save the life, and the hospitals ameliorate the injury at the level of the brain. Because remember, the brain starts, uh, starts being injured minute without, with, within minutes of not getting uh, enough oxygen. And so uh, we save lives, hospitals save lifestyles. We get the heart going, Hospitals continue that, and they main, they fix the problem with the brain with neat therapies or cool therapies like therapeutic hypothermia. Uh, yeah, it's it's interesting uh, looking back at how we've trained EMS providers, and this has been you know I'm thinking back to when the MDPB was talking about airway management and the new protocols in 2011. You know, the things that everyone was worried about actually kind of just flew under the radar and nobody really threw their arms up in, in huge animosity about but man termination or resuscitation in the field of that medical control really hit some providers really hard and, and putting on my uh, you know retrospectoscope goggles here and looking back and really thinking about things is we taught people for a really long time that the most important thing we could do for any patient is get them in the truck drive fast large rapid diesel bolus and get them to the hospital yeah. And it's funny. I think about you know my own training, and one of my uh, one of my preceptors always used to say to me, he goes, "Hey, let's let's slow down for a sec." The the ER did, the hospital didn't give us the candy, and they kept the real meds for themselves, and, and they didn't teach you how to put a bandaid on. We taught you how to assess patients and, and provide high level treatments. So let's slow down, start treatment now, get this patient more stabilized get them on the right path to recovery, then we'll get them to the hospital and they'll finish the job. Yeah. And I think, you know, I come back to what we said earlier, the right care for the right patient at the right time. And with cardiac arrest, what we know is the right care in the right time, we can offer the right care and the right time is absolutely now. It's immediate, right? And if, if we wait until the hospital uh, initiates care, the patient's outcomes will be very different. As I mentioned earlier, cardiac arrest, we probably have somewhere around 10 minutes to save a life. That's probably all we have right now doing the things that we do at this very point in time is 10 minutes to initiate therapy and save that life. And if we wait longer, then, you know, if we either 
wait longer or we offer mediocre therapy, our survival rates would decrease. So the right time is immediate, the right care we can provide, because you're right, we can provide the same level of care uh, as the hospital can through with the, with the resources we have, defibrillators, our ability to manage airways, our ability to provide medications. Um, in fact, in some ways, we have become the experts in cardiac arrest management, and it's really kind of neat to see that evolution occurring. Now, don't get me wrong, sometimes the right care has to happen in the hospital, and, that, and so we still have places where the diesel bullet still, still, um, still applies or where moving quickly still applies. But at least in cardiac arrest, I, I think you're right. The, the right care needs to be on scene. It, we cannot wait to establish the right care uh, upon arriving in the hospital because patients need what they need. They need it now. They need forward flow. They need to perfuse. They need to uh, to get blood moving, and we can do that by offering effective effective compressions. And and again, it's really heartening to see that those 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 protocols uh, being worked by services that embrace these concepts have seen tremendous improvements in their outcomes over the last year since those protocols have been out. All right, so that's going to wrap up our uh, frequently asked questions. We ran a little bit longer than we, quote, predicted, but that's okay. I said those would be, those would be fluid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're more guidelines. Guidelines, yeah. Yes. So, again, as we said earlier, if, if you have frequently asked or questions that have come up and that you continue to ponder on a regular basis, please send them to us and we'll, uh, we'll review them and, uh, and try to get an answer out to you in the subsequent episodes of this podcast. All right. Um, so we're going to move on to our uh, kind of our, our updates. And yeah. uh, I, I think a good place to start since we've kind of been talking about protocols right now is uh, if you want to give uh, an update for the MDPB, we're entering into our uh, protocol year again. It seems like yeah. we just finished. Uh, yeah, it does, doesn't it? So um, that's a great that's a great start, I guess, Don. And um, if you guys recall, our 2011 protocols went live in December of 2011, uh, December 1st of 2011. Um, immediately after that go live, and after a lot of the educational efforts and the FAQs and the resources that we tried to make available to folks, we started talking about how we do what we do with protocols. If you recall, up until 2011, we were on a three-year protocol cycle which meant that every three years we would review and update those protocols. Now, in 2011 in particular, there weren't a lot of um, big, ch there weren't a lot of uh, medication changes, there weren't a lot of additional protocols, but there were some pretty big philosophical changes, like the termination resuscitation change, like the airway changes that we started in in initiating. And we realized that that was a lot to swallow at any one time. We also looked around the country at how frequently other states update their protocols. We saw states that would update protocols um, on a rolling basis. We saw states that would update their protocols on a scheduled basis. And when those states that updated on a scheduled basis, some of them updated every year, some of them updated every two years, some of them updated every three years, and some of them just updated when on a non-scheduled basis. We believed that, number one, we need to maintain a schedule of updates, that we didn't want to catch people off guard with new protocols they weren't aware of, but that we also believed that, that three years was too long, that the pill was, or the, the, the amount of protocols were too hard to swallow when we waited every three years because of the continued evolution of medicine um, and in an interest of wanting to, 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 uh, to evolve contemporaneously with some of the major changes we're seeing uh, 
uh, in medicine. So based on those things, the MDPB members and the regional directors talked to a lot of folks around the state trying to gain consensus on what was a more appropriate schedule for uh, updating our protocols. And um, we came back and decided on a two-year cycle. Now, interestingly, that was done through our own processes, but then in, in the midst of learning about how some of our other states' neighbors do this, it turns out that many of the other state neighbors, in New England in particular, also will update on a two-year cycle, or they're moving to a two-year cycle for reasons very similar to us. So we are actually at the um, back end of that process. We have to review still the pink and yellow sections, but we've gone through the, uh, the other sections and had some really great discussions about what to do next. And I think um, uh, the, the MDPB puts a tremendous amount of work into the, and, and the, the people who attend that meeting put a lot of thought into these protocols. Um, we've historically always really tried to engage with providers on how to do that. And we've asked our MDPB members and our regional directors and regional offices to reach out to you all and get your input on this process as much as possible. And, you know, as time goes on, we hope to be able to do this in more technological ways, through email, maybe some website updates, perhaps some social media type of things. But please stay tuned for that as time goes on. If you have comments or interests or questions about the protocols, again, this is one way to send those messages. Another equally laudable way would be, though, to work with your regional offices, your regional directors, and your regional medical directors you might find an answer to your questions at the most local level. Um, many of the questions you have are probably the same questions other people have, and so getting answers or sharing those answers with others is really important to us. Also, uh, uh, just two things. One, I would say I, I think it's fantastic that the MDPB, with the amount of work that it actually takes to generate new protocols every two years, I, I think it's fantastic that you all committed to doing that that each of you has taken on sections and are really kind of championing the, championing the uh, conversation surrounding those. Um, the other is that every meeting that we have in terms of the MDPB, Education Committee, QI Committee, all these meetings are, are open meetings. Um, they're actually mandated to be open meetings by uh, the way state legislature works and whatnot. And, and people are welcome to attend. And, and um, I always try to let providers know that it is not uncommon, especially at the MDPB meeting, for the MDPB to look out at the, at the you know, form of people that are here and go, hey, what do you all think? Is this going to work for you when you're sitting out in you know, the snow at 3 o'clock in the morning in the middle of the road? Is this going to be helpful or is this just, you know, muddying the water? And, you know, you always make the decisions based on, on medicine, but you you do try to get that feedback. And, and it's, it's a time when people can show up and, you know, hear what's going on and, and occasionally have the uh, chance to actually have their voice heard as well. Yeah, I think it's important that, and I, I appreciate what you said about the MDPB, our, our, our tenor and our belief is that inclusivity is important here and that trying to hear as many voices as we make our decisions is, is really important. And um, I'll echo what you said. I'm, I'm, we are blessed with a very engaged group of physicians right now who are very dedicated to trying to help make the system as best as it can be. Um, if you uh, and, and, and if you're interested in again learning more about this process, I would urge you to catch up with either them or attend this meeting. You can receive the minutes from these meetings. Uh, all of those are are ways to learn more about uh, the MDPB and, and what's going on. 
Now, one other really neat thing that's going on is is that uh, you know there's a lot of there's a lot of attention being spent at the national level right now on protocols uh, or guidelines. Um, the the belief at the national level is that if there's really good evidence behind uh, uh, what we do, that we should make that known. We should try to practice that, and that we should build that into our guidelines or protocols. And this has really been championed by the FICOMS group, or the Federal Interagency uh, um, Committee on EMS. And they, along with NHTSA, or National Highway Trans- National Transportation Highway Safety Administration, have been sponsoring what are called evidence-based guidelines. And to this date, we've seen about three, uh, and we're on really on the fourth of these updates. This group, these groups have sponsored evidence-based guidelines for pediatric seizures, for helicopter utilization and trauma uh, in um, pediatric and adult pain control, and uh, we expect those all to be published sometime in 2013. Um, These are really, really uh, rigorous processes using uh, the literature as we know it, using a methodology called the GRADE methodology to assess the literature and really help make decisions based on, on, on that evaluation. Now, um, a group that I'm involved with and Don's involved with and, and, um, and Jay's involved with called NASEMSO, or the National Association of State EMS Officials, has been interested in what NHTSA and FICOMS are doing and um, are, have offered to try to help that process by creating model or consensus guidelines where we don't have those evidence-based guidelines just yet. So as I mentioned, there are three or working on a fourth evidence-based guideline, but there's certainly a lot more that we can do with uh, EMS protocols or guidelines. And um, it's really neat to see this NASEMSO group meeting on a regular basis to try to come up with these consensus guidelines. A few of us have been watching this and have been really excited about this and, and have been really thinking about how do we, how, what what can we do with these, these guidelines? And um, it happens that that Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut have all had a really rich history of working together through an agency called the New England Council on EMS. And those states, um, with the exception of Connecticut, all have um, uh, guidelines or protocols, state-based protocols. And one of the things we were talking about is that once these model guidelines come up, many of them, many of us are going to adopt the evidence-based guidelines and the model guidelines and start trying to use them in our, our state guidelines. And the idea came, well, if we're all doing that, why don't we take it the next step and think, try to learn some more lessons about what it would be like to to unroll a regional set of guidelines. So that Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut are working on on the same platform. As we got talking more and more about this, some really neat ideas came up. Um, You know, it makes uh, cross-state operations really easy, and that's great for disasters, but it's also great for services who are practicing in one state but transporting to another state. And we have a very large border we share with New Hampshire, for instance, and would make those operations a little more seamless. Um, say New Hampshire has another large border with Vermont, another border with, with, with Massachusetts, and, and those two states, Vermont and New Hampshire, are very excited about that element here 
Vermont uh, is excited because, if you recall, a few years ago, they suffered a horrible effects of a hurricane, and they uh, had a lot of help come in to their state, and they are really excited about this idea of resource sharing in the face of a disaster. Another thing we recognize, you mentioned this earlier, the MDPB spends a significant amount of its time and energy generating protocols, and to have existing protocols and another group that are willing to help us do that with some, the MDPB will always have to authorize and probably modify some of this stuff. Um, but having an outside group help with that process will allow the MDPB to really focus on other things and continue to grow and continue to be a part of advancing the system of, of EMS. And then um, it's just really cool to see a lot of effort around these, these, uh, these guidelines, and it's really neat to see a lot of energy around these guidelines. If, this, uh, if we're able to pull this off, we would be the greatest population of people cared for under a single set of EMS guidelines. 14.2 million people, based on this 2010 census data, would be cared for by this set of protocols. And what's awesome is that, getting back to QI, that gives us a tremendous patient population to start learning more about how we do what we do and start to improve what we do based on our own care moving forward. And that's another very exciting thing the, that the public health community is, is very interested in, in being able to, um, to engage with us around. So for many reasons, we're starting to look at this process and, and participate in this process. The, uh, just so you know, this is a, a deliberate, deliberate process that's going to take some amount of time. We expect that we would not be able to get to fully realized multi-state protocols until somewhere beyond 2017. It's going to take us that long to modify formats, do gap analyses, to uh, figure out how to do what we do now so well, but do it with others. Um, so for instance, um, there are things that we do in Maine that we pride ourselves on. There are things in other states that they pride themselves on. There's a level of involvement in this protocol process in Maine that I'm I, I believe is very special. How do we maintain that level of involvement from the MDPB and other people like uh, you, for instance, providers, EMS leadership, uh, emergency medicine providers across the state? How do we maintain the involvement in this process amongst those populations uh, if we do multi-state protocols? Those are questions we need to answer, and we're going to try to find those answers in the next couple of years as we move forward. But for right now, the big effort is looking at the state protocols, looking at the national protocols, and doing gap analyses, and starting to take incremental steps toward a common uh, content as well as a common format. And I think it's uh, that that foreshadows for everyone that our format of the protocols will be changing in 2013 when the new protocols come out. Hopefully for the better. And I'm very interested in your input. Once that gets done, we'll have a lot of examples of that that'll be displayed on the website. So. Please contact your regional offices, your regional directors, your regional medical directors, and if you're if you want to hear more about that through this forum, contact uh, us through Don's email. Actually, if you want to see the the general format that we're going to be following, you can actually just uh, hop over to the New Hampshire EMS office and uh, 
oh, yeah, look the at their protocols because that's actually the the model that the, the it's the, the three New England states and the in the wannabes, right? <laughs> yes, the three New England states and the southern states in New England. So the southern states in New England would be Mass, Rhode Island, and Connecticut. Okay. Um, so we're, we're actually going to be working on the, the format that New Hampshire currently uses. Uh, everyone kind of had a consensus that that was probably the most user-friendly and uh, yeah, the, the folks in New Hampshire, led by their medical director, Tom Dupree, and a guy um, that works with him named Jim, Jim Swosey, that, and, and his, their predecessors, including their state directors now and before, and their protocol uh, committee have come up with a very um, nice format that we've, uh, we all collectively agreed is, is one of the nicer formats in New England, and we're going to try to use that with some, uh, some personalization to the state of Maine. So. All right, awesome. A uh, couple other just updates that I'll, I'll put out there from, from our office. Uh, some of you may know that we've been going through a, a, a rules update, a rules change that's been going on for a while. Uh, the board of EMS voted on those, on those rules changes back in December. Um, they meet bimonthly. Those, the proposed rules have gone uh, to the AG's office to make sure that all the language is legal and consistent. And we don't have any uh, contradictory information in there, things like that. And once that they give their stamp of approval, uh, those rules currently are uh, scheduled to go live May 1st. Um, there have been some changes that exist in there um, with license levels and CEHs and things like that. Um, I'm not going to get deep into that right now. We can, can chat about that another day if, if need be. Um, those rules will be up on the website. People can see what the changes are. We'll be making sure that a lot of information gets out about um, what providers should expect in the future. Um, we're hoping that actually some of these changes are actually going to make life easier for EMS providers, especially around CEHs and uh, the combination of topics, categories, so that we don't have BLS providers that are sitting through ALS training for no reason. They actually get content hour for that now. Um, talk about the protocol updates already. Um, just talk briefly about what education's, what's going on with education. Um, we're trying to really leverage MEMSAD and I can tell you from looking at the reports, most of you probably have not logged into MEMSED at this point. I would encourage you to do so. It's uh, memsed.org. It's our online learning management system. Uh, you all have usernames already. If you don't know it, you can use the Forgot Password uh, tab. We'll get you your information. Everything will work out well there. Uh, we, we've put like protocol updates went up on there. Uh, we've got the aspirin study training that went up. We're trying to really push users or uh, providers to utilize this because it's free. It's you're earning CEH credit for it, and it gets the message directly from us out to all of you. And that's actually where this podcast is going to live. So you're going to have to log in to uh, get access to this anyway. But we really want people to engage in that system. If there's trainings that people want to see up there, we want to get them up. I'll, I'll be honest; it's a fairly labor-intensive process to put trainings up with recording audio for them and getting all the. the language on the back end of the software to work appropriately, but it's something we're happy to do, and we're, we're really striving to get a lot more training up there in, in the 2013 calendar year. And some of that training is pushed by the MBPB, things that they want to see put up there, uh, stuff that comes directly from the Education Committee, and then other stuff is just things that we've all done that gets approved through the uh, process for education getting added to MEMZED. Yeah, um, Don mentioned we're really excited about this for lots of different reasons, but first thanks go out to John Powers and Kerry Parmelo in 2011 who really championed this, Jay Bradshaw who found resources and, and, and made really made this happen, 
Um, and our first effort really was our uh, education update for the protocols in 2011. And what we learned was just the power and reach of this platform. Uh, many of you, um, I think the numbers were between 12 and 1,500 of you actually got your protocol update through that, that platform. And we uh, are increasingly, under Don's leadership, putting more resources up there, such as this podcast. Um, and we, we hope to keep that up in the future. In fact, we're going to start talking about how to get and draw more content to that. And if you have ideas, please let us know. We like to steal ideas. Um, it's, we're, we're good at that. So please share. Um, in fact, this podcast idea just came out of uh, Matt and I sitting down one day to work on the Aspen QI study and went, hey, you know, we could do this on a regular basis and, and make an educational process out of this. Hmm. So here we are. Any other big updates that you can think of that we should? I can't think so, but we'll uh, we'll keep this we'll keep this uh, part of the podcast going and uh, make sure that we bring updates to you. There's a lot of things going on right now. That's a that's a thirty thousand foot view, and certainly there are lots of stuff we couldn't or didn't touch on this this time around. We'll start building those in as time goes forward. But it's Sounds great. Good. All right. So, what, what do we want to chat about for education today? Well, so we, we talked about a couple different things already. Uh, it's kind of educationally pertinent. I think uh, what you and I were, were talking about in the planning phases of this, we're really touching a little bit on stroke, a little bit more on cardiac arrest. And then it is uh, right now the middle to beginning of January, and I think it's a timely thing we'd like to also touch base on is influenza and kind of let you know what's happening. Uh, well, you probably already know what's happening, but I want you to, we want to talk about how you can help, how your service can help, how many EMS is thinking about influenza. And then I think we'll wrap it up at that point. So what do you think? That sound good? Sounds good. All right. We talked about cardiac arrest a lot, but we uh, probably throw some more things in there about that. Yeah, that's a good segue. When we talk about cardiac arrest, I think um, we do talk a lot about cardiac arrest, um, but I think it's because we are so vital to the care of patients with cardiac arrest. And, and, um, and we're, we're also... Um, spend a lot of time and attention on the care of these patients and we're also, as I mentioned earlier, seeing some really awesome um, outcomes from that, those energies. Um, so let's, let's talk about that. So um, I mentioned some of the changes we made, uh, this attention on, on, uh, on chest compressions, working patients on scene are really important. And I wanted to kind of flush this attention on chest compressions out a little bit more. So it's one thing to say we want to spend a lot of attention and time on chest compressions. It's another, another thing to kind of explain how to do that. So, so one of the things that uh, we've talked about is, is working patients where they are. Again, that's really important if at all, uh, all operationally feasible, if it's safe for you to do so. Um, it becomes an important piece of the puzzle because as we talked the literature suggests a decrease in the effectiveness of your efforts uh, if you if you don't do that. Um, uh, we also talked about sort of uh, airway management and how to best manage a person's airway. One of the things we recognize is that uh, delays occur or, or interruptions occur when we when we intubate someone. It's fair to say that in the past our practice always was intubate early the ABCs of car, of, of care. And you saw in the AHA update in 2010 sort of changing things around, focusing on the CABs, uh, the compressions, the airway breathing. Some of us thought actually that 
that if they might take it a step further and go CBA and really start to, to alter the way we think about airway management. Um, uh, but it didn't happen that, that time around. One, one of the, uh, what we know is that um, in, in our prior operations, we had a lot of potential to interrupt chest compressions um, those, through the mechanism we mentioned. We, we know that chest compressions are really important, and we know it's important based on both uh, human and animal, both scientific and observational information that shows us improved survival with effective chest compressions, as well as increased perfusion with effective chest compressions. Remember that we're trying to take the person from a no flow state, where there's no flow of blood, to a low flow state, uh, and we're hoping to be able to get their heart to start beating again and approach a normal flow state. And our efforts, our compressions, get them to that, that low flow from the no flow state. And if at all possible, we never want to hit the no flow state again. We want to maintain perfusion moving forward. Right? So that, what that means is we talked about earlier, we want to uh, minimize or maximize the effectiveness by not moving the patient. We want to minimize interruptions, the major one being intubation. Um, and then we want to do what we do right. We want to maintain the right rate. We want to maintain the right depth. You know, uh, we want to keep our hands on the person at all time. In reality, the only time we should really stop compressions is at the end of that two-minute cycle when we stop to check a pulse and check a, a rhythm. It's vitally important to resume compressions immediately after shocking a person. The reason why that's so important in our old practice we would search and hunt for a pulse, but in reality, some of the more common rhythms a person's shocked into are still non-perfusing, like PEA. So VF, VT, shock to PEA, and we lose vital time if we check a pulse at that point in time. We should check a pulse at the end of our, our, our time period. So effective chest compressions becomes important. Uh, the way we manage the airway becomes important. Most of the literature we see coming out right now uh, from um, uh, uh, since the or before and since the AHA update suggests that we probably could either delay intubation to later on in the case using other adjuncts or maybe even use uh, oxygen as a primary adjunct in the early phases of, of, uh, of, of resuscitation. A lot of folks have uh, uh, started using LMAs and Kings in the care of these patients early on. That's certainly laudable, the, but I, I'm watching some of the literature develop real uh, right now about maybe that's not as good as just using a, 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 a oxygen and a BVM. We'll, we'll get back to you more on that when we know more about that. Can we jump back to the chest compressions for a sec? Yeah. Um, I know that you've been pretty heavily involved in, in actually looking at some, uh, some information that you can actually pull out of monitors that actually using a, a monitors from one of your local department that actually give feedback on compression rates and, and depth. And um, looking at actual rates of compressions? Yeah, so and that's a great, great, uh, great um, question. Uh, I work with Portland Fire Department as their medical director, and recently they added on a piece of technology to their machines, their defibrillators, that'll include accelerometers, and those accelerometers will tell us hands-on time, depth, and rate. And it, it's been really interesting 
deploying those pieces of equipment because it's, it's really the first time we can start measuring how well we do chest compressions. And the lessons that we've learned have been fascinating. If you would have asked me before we deployed these what my general or my gestalt was about how we were doing with our rates of chest compressions, I would have guessed that we were too slow. In reality, what we found is that we're actually way too fast, and it's been fascinating collecting that information and being able to, to learn those lessons. Um, our, I think it's been beneficial to our crews, and we've found ways to involve this information during the resuscitation to help guide the crews uh, to do compressions better. And, and it's, that's part of what I believe is responsible for some of the um, improvement in that system. Uh, for those of you um, uh, who, ha who haven't, we've been talking about this a little bit, and what we've, we've learned is that our, uh, we've been able to triple our survival for cardiac arrest in, in Portland Fire Department by uh, using that information, by changing the way we do things, and it's been really, really neat to see such a great improvement over that period of time. Um, we're really excited, actually, knowing what we know now and with the attention we've spent in our QI model, um, led by John Quistra, uh, and we know now that there's much more we can even do. There's lots more we can do with cardiac arrest. And our training officers, including Captain John Brady, are considering... Uh, the pit crew model of, of cardiac arrest care, sort of like an incident command model where everyone knows what they're supposed to do and how they do it, uh, how they communicate is streamlined. And for services that have really adopted that model, that sort of ICS model for cardiac arrest, they've seen even additional improvements in outcomes. And, and I think there's a lot more that we can do both at the service level and at the state level to really start even doing better than we're doing right now. I'm very excited about uh, cardiac arrest, and, and, and I'm excited because it's real people's and real lives saved that we're, we're being able to, to affect here. I just want to point out a couple things in there. As you're sitting here listening to this, um, you know, even if you're in a you know, Portland Fire Department is, is a well-resourced agency, you know. They, they've got full-time people, a lot of paramedics, you know, people who got really excited about deploying this technology. And, and I don't want you to sit here and think that if you're working for, you know, a volunteer service or a service that doesn't have those resources, there's still a lot of things that you can do to improve the way you're doing CPR. You know, simple, cheap things like a metronome, you know, used by musicians for years to actually set a rate for themselves to, to play music by you know, things as simple as that so that you're making sure you're hitting the right right beat because one of the things that you guys found early on, like you said, is providers inherently thought they were going too slow but were actually hitting somewhere around an average of, what, 140? Yeah, folks were actually overcompensating, and, and the danger with overcompensation and having rates, uh, we believe right now that the right rate uh, or that there's a range for proper rates, but that over 120 or over 125 is just too fast, and that's based on outcomes data from the ROC or the Resuscitation Outcomes Consortium, as well as animal data that really proves you are not allowing for complete recoil of the chest and then refilling of the heart when you start going in rates over 120 to 125. And I always think about that because we start treating tachycardias around the 150 range. Yeah. And you and I have had the conversation of the, the 
the, the formula for the maximum safe heart rate of 220 minus the patient's age, you know, if you start taking an 80-year-old person, you're down under 140. Yeah. And the fact that, hey, well, you know, as long as you're hitting at least 100, you know, go to town. Well, then it makes me think, you know, well, it logically makes sense that if we're hitting 140, 150, we would treat that if the person was alive mm-hmm. to slow it down. Why would we want to compress that fast to try to get them back to life? Yeah. You know, and it just it kind of clicked after I really started thinking about that. It, Don's right. that you, you don't need to be fancy to get here. I, I think the, the important things you can do are, are really simple, like Don mentioned. You know, the... the the, the most important things that we offer a person are early defibrillation when applicable as well as effective chest compressions. And when I say effective, I mean that we're doing the right rate. And that rate's at least 100, but definitely under the 120 and 125. Uh, and Don mentioned you can buy metronomes. In fact, there are metronomes that are now marketed to EMS for this purpose. They're disposable ones. They're non-disposable ones. Um, but I think the reality is that finding some mechanism to meet that, uh, if you sing uh, Staying Alive in the Back of Your Head, um, there are tons of other songs that the AHA has propagated that meet that. Um, uh, interestingly, uh, you can find that on the AHA website if you're interested. But finding a way to really hit that right proper rate of at least 100, but definitely below 120 to 125. You want to hit the right depth, and that's 2.5 inches right now, 5 centimeters or 50 millimeters for those of you practicing way up north and are using that system of, of measurement. Uh, interestingly, I just got back from a conference, and the folks from uh, actually Canada, as a matter of fact, had done some, uh, done some research on proper depth, and what they found was that proper depth absolutely mattered, and there's a sweet spot. If you are too shallow, you don't have enough force to push blood forward. If you're too deep, you don't allow for effective recoil, and blood doesn't move forward. So really trying to hit that right depth is important. We do want to relax. We want to allow for complete recoil of the chest wall, and that's important because by relaxing and relying, allowing for complete recoil, we allow the heart to fill back up again. You know, next, um, we really want to avoid interruptions and compressions as much as possible. We want to aim to be doing compressions as many, as much within the resuscitation as we can, and, and that means being very critical of anything that gets in the way of compressions, if that's transport, if it's movement, if it's airway management. We know that compressions are some of the most important things we offer these folks, and so we want to be highly critical of anything that interrupts them. And then next, once we do manage their airway, we want to avoid excessive ventilations. And this is a, there's a key premise here. When we, when we shift from, uh, when we shift from a uh, natural ventilation to a provided ventilation, we are fundamentally reversing the physiology inside the chest. So for instance, when I breathe in right now, I'm creating a negative intrathoracic pressure. And what that does is it draws blood into my thorax. But if you are bagging me through a regular mask or an LMA or an ET tube, you are causing a positive pressure in my intrathoracic cavity, and that's decreasing preload or return in the heart. So if we bag too fast, we actually we decrease the amount of cardiac output by decreasing 
cardiac preload. So we want to hit the sweet spot between oxygenation, ventilation, and perfusion, and the best we can do with that is probably a respiratory rate of about 10, so somewhere between 8 and 12 per minute, which is a lot slower than we typically do. We really want to be careful when, we, when we're bagging someone to bag them at the right rate. Again, that's probably around 10. So depth can also be a very important factor in that as well, because if you are overventilating, you're still creating that, that um, massive increase in intrathoracic pressure as well. Absolutely. And like Don said, those easy, uh, those, those quick things, those are really, really important. Um, and there's an easy way to start uh, adopting some of the principles that other services have found so successful. Other things that I think we can mention are this concept of the pit crew model of care or having structured roles and responsibilities, integrating with your hospital at a high level, um, and, and keep your ears to the ground for more things that we discover are, 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 are useful. We'll start promulgate, promulgating those practices as time goes on. Great. You know, another thing that Don and I wanted to talk about is stroke. And um, you know, just like we discussed in the in the past spending a lot of time on um, we've spent a lot of time on acute coronary syndromes and and and, and STEMI in particular, recognizing the value of VMS and and in uh, discovering STEMIs and activating pathways of care. The same premises holds true for stroke, and there's a lot of work being done on stroke systems of care. You know, just uh, as a background, remember that there are both hemorrhagic strokes and ischemic stroke. Hemorrhagic strokes account for somewhere between 10 and 15% of strokes in the U.S., with the remainder being ischemic strokes. Remember that, uh, that there's also events like TIAs out there, which are the equivalent of angina of the brain, right? So strokes are like an MI of the brain, TIAs are like angina of the brain, and just like we have unstable angina, we have unstable TIAs too, with stuttering patterns, uh, increasing frequency behind TIAs. And also, just like angina can can be a predictor of heart disease that could go on to a, uh, an MI. TIAs can be a predictor of uh, disease in the brain that can go on to a stroke. And so that, that's kind of the definitions um, we need to think about. Now stroke, the epidemiology of stroke is, 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 is really important to recognize too. It's the third leading, leading cause of death in the U.S. as a whole and a very um, uh, common cause of healthcare expenditures because of the after effects, the, 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 the disability that occurs afterwards. We see somewhere in the order of 800,000 strokes per year with approximately 150,000 deaths, and that's based on data from 2005. As far as our recovery, um, our recovery rates, 10% of folks will recover completely, 25% will have some minor impairments but still be able to function at a high level, 40% will have moderate to severe impairments, 10% will require some degree of help uh, moving forward in the form of long-term care. 22% of stroke patients will die within one year of the event. 14% of patients will have another stroke within a year. And 25% of stroke patients will die within five years from their first stroke. And we, we Don and I want to share that with you to kind of map out what we're dealing with here. Now the big question becomes, can we as an EMS providers play a role in stroke? And the, the unequivocal answer is yes, absolutely. And I think what's really exciting to folks like me or folks like Don or Jay or many of the other EMS leaders in the state is we're increasingly learning and recognizing the value of EMS in all time-critical 
illnesses, and injuries. Getting back to what we talked about earlier, the right care, the right patient at the right time. And there are places where we deliver the care, and there's places where we set the pace for patients, and we establish a care paradigm that embraces the patient early and then uh, continues to work for them moving forward. And so one of the ways that we can do this is by recognition. And recognition really begins at the level of EMD through some of the stroke questionnaire questions. Along with recognition, we've also got to start our moving fast. And this is where maybe that diesel bolus comes into play that Don talked about earlier, and, and, and really uh, trying to streamline what we do. Now, EMD may recognize the symptoms. If EMD doesn't, we really need to. And so we need to be keyed into some of those stroke symptoms, uh, you know, speech difficulties, weakness, sensory changes, um, sometimes vertigo, sometimes mental status changes. And when we recognize those symptoms, we need to evaluate the person. And really, we've recognized over the years the power of stroke evaluation tools like the Cincinnati Preosper Stroke Scale that we have endorsed here in Maine. And what we found through a lot of our QI work is that um, when you believe the patient's having a stroke and when they have positive findings on the Cincinnati Preosper Stroke Scale, that's highly predictive that some emergency is going on in their brain, either a, a, a hemorrhagic stroke, an ischemic stroke, or a TIA. Those combined two pieces are highly predictive that something's going on uh, with the patient. And once we recognize through EMD, our evaluation, including the Cincinnati Preosper Stroke Scale, the way that we really play a big role here is notifying the hospital and allowing them to prepare for what's going to be a resource-heavy patient arriving to them. Now, remember that the things that have to happen in in, in maybe not this order at the hospital number one, the emergency uh, medicine team has to evaluate the person. Um, we want to rule out some mimics. We want to get a good baseline examination, uh, which has traditionally in included the, the NIH stroke scale, which is a, a little bit more in-depth than the Cincinnati Preosper stroke scale. We want to make sure we get a CT scan within a definitive period of time on that patient. That CT scan is interpreted and that neurology is activated either in person or through a telemedicine program. And then a decision is made to provide that patient with the right therapy. And the right therapy may include thrombolytics. Now, what we know about our emergency medicine system is that we play a vital role in meeting all of those, those time elements. So when a patient comes in by EMS, when they're recognized as having a stroke, when they're evaluated by us, and we alert the hospital, time to emergency medicine, physician and nurse evaluation is decreased, time to CT is decreased, time to neurology is decreased, and time to therapy is decreased. And while you may have heard about this three-hour window for thrombolytics, we know is that getting medications in earlier actually does more good. Now, the other big thing we can do along with those elements are when we're managing these folks, we want to be really, really careful. We want to make sure that we oxygenate appropriately. And there's more and more information and literature coming out about the benefit of proper oxygenation and that hyperoxia or more oxygen isn't necessarily good. Uh, more oxygen leads to uh, more free radicals in the brain. This is an injured brain and it may not, uh, may be damaging. So we want to maintain our oxygen saturations of somewhere between 94 and 95 based on some of the best information we have. So if a person's satting 
97% on Rumir, we probably shouldn't add to that and push them to, to 100%. We also want to watch their cardiac monitor, do a 12 lead as possible. Remember that many of these strokes are thrombotic, meaning that there's disease inside the vessels. Some of these are embolic, meaning that the, 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 uh, the, the lesion comes from somewhere else. And a common place that that may happen from is the heart in the face of AFib. We want to, if possible, do the thrombolytic checklist. And, and remember that we play a vital role in these patients because our evaluation may be the only possible evaluation that this patient has. For instance, if you're at home, you evaluate, you evaluate the patient and there are, are either family members, friends, or bystanders there, they can give us information like when the patient was last seen normal. They can give us information about past medical history, about medications, about allergies, etc. And if the patient is dysarthric, meaning they, they have very slurred speech, or they're aphasic, meaning they can't speak, then they may not be able to advocate for themselves when they get to the hospital. So the information you collect on scene is really, really important, especially if someone doesn't accompany the patient to the hospital. I just want to touch on that for a moment, actually looking at some of the information that's come out of uh, some of the uh, hospitals. Sometimes it's not even necessarily that information. It isn't as important when you document it necessarily for the ER because you're usually giving a face-to-face -face dialogue with a physician. But it's actually down the road when neurologists are looking at run reports, that's often the information that's missing is when were they at baseline? What were the onset of symptoms and your initial assessment? And making sure that we document that really well with the acknowledgement that the neurologist isn't going to have that opportunity to ask you questions like an ER physician will. So you exactly. need to make sure if a physician asks you a question in the ER, making sure that you document that same information in your run report so that later somebody else reading that in the ICU, in whatever realm of care, has the opportunity to have that same information. It becomes extremely important. I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, things we probably should not do, we should probably avoid hyperglycemia whenever possible. There's a lot of uh, information coming out about the, the downsides of, of excess glucose uh, being injurious to the brain. We want to avoid major shifts in blood pressure, and in particular, if the patient's hypertensive, high blood pressure, we don't want to lower that precipitously in the back of an ambulance. We want to avoid hyperoxia, we talked about that earlier, and we want to avoid excess IV fluids. Uh, all these things are important to the patient, and our care is vital to these patients when they are cared for by us and we engage in this system of care they end up doing much better than if they do not engage with us so we are an important piece of the puzzle here so maybe in summary we'll say recognize these patients keep your keep yourself attuned for patients with stroke syndromes evaluate these patients both by your history your examination but don't underestimate the power of the Cincinnati Pre-Hospital Stroke Scale to really help determine the likelihood of stroke. Rule out mimics with a finger stick. Uh, if possible, monitor and do 12 leads as part of your evaluation phase is all. Communicate with the hospital will be the next thing and being giving them as much heads up as possible that, you, they, that this patient is preparing, preparing to come to them. Um, that allows them to free up the CT scanner. It allows them to activate their system of care internally, which in many cases also includes getting neurologists moving toward the patient as well. 
Um, and then uh, remember those things to avoid. Uh, avoiding excess glucose, of keeping the patient uh, as uh, with an O2 sap between the 94 and 95 range, don't change their blood pressure, avoid excess IV fluids, all those things are really important. Just a couple things to, to touch on. Um, engaging in your local, uh, ho- engaging with your local hospital can really play a key role with these patients because we were all taught, we've all been taught that these people need to get to definitive care. And often we'll think about, you know, with, car- with our cardiac patients, they need to get someplace that has an interventional cath lab. We'll think that with a stroke patient, they need to get somewhere that has interventional capabilities. But one of the things that we really need to keep in mind is that sometimes early stabilizing treatment, much like with our trauma patients, at a local facility, and then moving these patients to a hospital such as, you know, Maine Med, Central Maine, any place that has the capabilities of intervening with these patients is going to be the best treatment for that patient. That early thrombolytics at an outlying hospital and then that hospital transferring them to another facility may be the best thing for that patient. So don't bypass a hospital just because they're not going to have the end result care that that patient may need. That's a, that's a very interesting metaphor to kind of sort of think about. Um, you know, we, we have trauma centers in the hospital in the state. Those would be Main Med, Eastern Main Med, Central Main Med. We have trauma system hospitals, which the majority of other hospitals in our state are. And, and, and Don, what Don mentions about the value of the promptness of care, uh, and a reevaluation of the patient after that to consider does the patient need more? That's a really interesting model to apply for stroke patients as well. And I would agree that most hospitals in our state can offer this immediate care. And as I said earlier, the faster a patient receives this therapy, the better they do. So bypassing a hospital to take a long trip somewhere else may actually be bad for them. So working with your local hospital to establish what your system of care is going to be is vitally important. Reaching out to your emergency providers and your uh, to, to work work through that is really important here. And then recognize that there's more than just thrombolysis that we can do for these patients and that the care for them beyond thrombolysis is really important. Being able to get the right resources to their side is important. And, you know, we are learning increasingly about how to better care for these folks. Some of these folks go through something like the cath lab and have extraction of, of clots in their brain. And that's a really new horizon, a neat thing that some of the hospitals in the state are starting to engage in. So again, work with your hospital, develop your system of care, really agree upon what that is, and then maintain the patient at the center of your decision making as you make those, as you make those changes. Great. I think last we want to touch on uh, influenza as it is a lovely flu season this year. Yeah, yeah. So um, Don and I uh, were thinking it wouldn't be a bad idea to touch base on influenza and what uh, what's happening. Many of you have felt the, uh, the, the strain of influenza on either your own EMS service or you witnessed the strain of influenza at the level of the hospitals. Many of our hospitals have been um, challenged by higher than expected volumes this time of year because of influenza. Many of them have uh, been on diversion, as a matter of fact, because of influenza. Around us in our immediate state neighbor, neighbors, uh, Massachusetts, some of the areas of Massachusetts have, de- developed, have declared public health emergencies because of influenza. New Hampshire reported uh, higher than expected cases of influenza and higher than expected deaths uh, this year. Uh, it, it is interesting. Um, Jay was actually having a conversation with some of the people at the CDC, and the reality is that 
I think probably become more attuned to paying attention to influenza since the H1N1 um, outbreak that happened. But the reality is, if I'm not mistaken, this flu season is actually in line with a lot of historical flu seasons that have existed. We've kind of been spoiled for the last couple of years with pretty mild uh, influenza. Yeah, so uh, H1N1 was the 09-10 season. Uh, remember, it actually began pretty early in the... the uh, the spring of 2009, um, earlier than would have been expected. And that was the, the most recent uh, bad flu season we had. And even that, while we did a lot of preparing and a lot of planning, and there certainly there were a surge on the system and more a higher mortality than would have been expected, it wasn't as bad as we had planned for. Then the subsequent years, we've, as Don mentioned, have been less severe than historic seasons have been. This happens to be the most severe uh, uh, flu season we've seen since the 09-10 um, uh, flu season with H1N1. And it just so happens that the current circulating strain of flu is H3N2, which is pretty transmissible and, and fairly virulent with a, with a higher than normal mortality um, from other circulating strains of flu. Interestingly, the, the, the World Health Organization and the public health experts properly predicted this strain of flu and built it into our vaccination program. Um, the vaccine is approximately 60% effective, which doesn't necessarily sound like a lot, but in the public health arenas, that's actually very good coverage, meaning that 60% of the folks who get it will not have influenza this year. Uh, it just so happens we haven't seen H3N2 circulate within the community recently, in the, especially the last couple of years, and so not many people have innate um, immunization, uh, an, an innate immune response to H3N2, um, and that's one reason why we think it's uh, causing so much illness right now. Um, you know, uh, I mentioned some of the, what's going on around us. We've been highly uh, attuned to what's been happening. We've been watching um, this occur, and I wanted to kind of conceptualize for you all uh, how we're approaching this and what our sort of what the thought process is. We realize there's probably um, at least three um, three kind of phases of influenza. There's uh, this place where we're in right now where we're seeing flu, and uh, but we're still able to operate normally as an EMS system. Um, and in this phase, I, I think it's really important to uh, consider three actionable steps and things we should be doing right now. Uh, those are to plan, so uh, reviewing your influenza plan, reviewing your surge plan, reviewing your system of care within your community that includes your, your hospitals. Um, that's a, a really important step. You want to prepare by taking to heart those elements of your plan that require action and, and really starting the process up. And then we finally want to prevent, and we want to prevent the spread of flu as much as possible. And we prevent the spread of flu by getting vaccinated. So that's the first foundation thing and one of the, the, the baseline things we can all do right now to help, um, help prevent the spread of the disease. Remember, as EMS providers, we are in people's homes. Then we go to hospitals, which are a, a collection point for sick folks. We are exposing ourselves to transmissible, transmissible diseases on a regular basis, uh, so we're at risk. We are also at risk 
um, for uh, transmitting the disease to someone else. And so we really want to remember that we are stewards of health in our community, and one of the things we can do to prevent picking up or spreading the disease is getting the vaccine. The vaccine is being made increasingly available. Right now, we do not have shortages of vaccines, so please, if you haven't been vaccinated, there is still time to do so. The other thing we want to do is we want to maintain excellent hand hygiene. And hand hygiene is essential in decreasing the spread of communicable diseases. You want to make sure you use uh, soap and water or any of the hand sanitizing gels. You want to use that before you engage in patient care and certainly want to use it after you engage in patient care. It's not enough just to glove. Gloving is also important, but it's not enough. By gloving, we prevent uh, you know, being exposed to bodily fluids, but we don't necessarily prevent spreading the, the bodily fluids. Uh, washing our hands is essential to uh, decreasing the transmission of disease. The third thing we really want to do is we want to recognize influenza. And so influenza is recognized by a pattern of symptoms uh, that we call influenza-like illnesses. And that pattern of symptoms includes fevers, sometimes abrupt and onset, sometimes very severe. Also, cough is common in influenza. Remember that influenza is uh, primarily a respiratory illness. So fever, cough, sore throat, myalgias, which mean muscle aches, or malaise, meaning I just feel bad, are also part of the symptoms. And then finally, some folks, a very small percentage of folks, uh, can have nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. Now, that is most typical in the young, um, but it is still a less common presenting symptom of influenza. But if you see someone with those influenza-like illnesses, you want to be you want to start engaging in, uh, in good um, uh, uh, prevention practices, which would include hand washing as well as droplet precautions to prevent the transmission of the disease to yourself or from the patient to you. So the final thing here is that if you get those symptoms, if you have what you think is influenza, you should make sure to follow your service's sick call policy and uh, in order to decrease the spread of influenza to your, your, um, your own colleagues or to patients that you encounter. And so that's under the normal operations. That's the things that we shall be doing now. Now, many of us have been thinking about what to do if things get worse. We've conceptualized a lot of different things and we're working and planning on how to, how to affect operations in a positive manner if, if we start seeing greater surges on the healthcare system or we start seeing a reduction in the workforce because of influenza. Those elements we're working on, we, had, had, we have our own uh, main EMS uh, pandemic influenza plan that we worked through with the CDC uh, based on historical uh, uh, influenza seasons and we're re-engaging with many of our uh, uh, state and local and public health partners to, uh, to reinforce those plans as we speak. And as time goes on, depending on the frequency of this podcast, we will start giving you more information about that if it becomes necessary. But for the time being right now, remember plan, prepare, prevent, get vaccinated, wash your hands, look for ILI patients and practice uh, droplet precautions, and finally, follow your workplace, um, your workplace plan if you become sick with influenza-like illness yourself. All right, great. So that's going to wrap up the uh, 
first of uh, hopefully many uh, fireside chats. Thank you all for listening, and uh, please send your comments to us. We look forward to your feedback. Great.